The Army Research Laboratory, part of the Combat Capabilities Development Command, is close to disseminating a new technology that will stanch bleeding in difficult-to-treat body areas. Federal News Network's Scott Massioni talks about the new invention and its implications with one of the ARL's Chemistry Division Chiefs, Robert Mance. Right now, when soldiers go out in the field, they oftentimes are equipped with tourniquets. And if you have a, um, you know, a wound on your leg or in your arm, you can obviously put the, uh, the tourniquet upstream of, of that location and, um, and cut off you know, or reduce blood flow areas so you can try and hopefully uh, induce clotting. Um, even in those situations, uh, if it's an arterial um, rupture or, or, or where an artery has been ruptured, it's, it's particularly challenging to, uh, to stop that blood flow, partially because of, uh, they tend to be at a higher pressure, but secondly because there's the pulsation of blood coming from the heart, and that oftentimes will uh, rinse away uh, um, a material if you're trying to put it there to try and induce clotting, and or it just takes hard, it's harder for clots to form and shut that down. What we've been looking for are, are solutions that will allow us to um, directly apply um, hemostats on, on a wound um, to one, maybe eliminate the, the, the use of a tourniquet and, and because they do have some challenges associated with, um, you know, eliminating blood flow to that extreme area and causing other damage. So if we could put something in there like uh, um, this material, um, and which is based on POS, to, to shut down that. But the other thing is there are wounds that can be in locations where you don't want to apply a tourniquet. So obviously if I have a wound in my, on my neck, uh, or in my groin region, it, it may be you just don't want to put a tourniquet around someone's neck for obvious reasons, um, or it's just really hard to put um, bandages and such to provide direct pressure um, as in a, in a groin region. So we want to be able to address those those subset uh, of, of injuries where it's just really hard to, 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 to shut down the, the blood flow to the region and or to, to apply direct pressure to, 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 to reduce bleeding. The military talks a lot about what's called the golden hour, which is the, the hour after an initial injury and bleeding. What's the importance uh, for those of us that aren't that medically minded of having blood flow that actually works and, and that is, uh, you know, not hindered in any way? When you talk about the golden hour, um, obviously after a soldier gets injured from, from, what, from whatever, you know, whether it be a, a bullet or, or an explosion that happens approximately to, their, to themselves, um, you know, we, and oftentimes you want to be able to, to sustain that person such that you've got enough time to get them back to a, a primary care uh, facility that can, that can give them a more advanced health care. Um, so when, when it comes to uh, an arterial uh, bleed, um, actually the, you know, the, the time that you actually have to, uh, to try and produce, to, to provide first aid is, is very limited. You, could, you can literally bleed out within, you know, minutes to tens of minutes uh, with, an, with an arterial bleed. So we're really looking for something that will, will stabilize that person, be able to you know, apply, apply uh, um, stat bond or, or other products, if, if there are other products out there, that can, that can shut down that bleeding and, and give that person enough time so that we do have the ability to transport them back to a facility that can give them um, uh, more thorough health care. So in this case, like I said, uh, um, our arteries are particularly challenging, and then on top of that, as I mentioned, um, uh, you know, some regions such as the groin and or neck or other injuries like that, you just don't have the, 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 the flexibility or you don't have the option, I should say, to, to apply a tourniquet. That would also apply to uh, um, injuries on, 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 that, on the head. 
So the army has been working with uh, Vanderbilt University and a company to develop stat bonds and to, to bring it into a more mass produced arena. Can you explain this product and how exactly it works on these more difficult areas to reach? Now, the Army has a long history of working with a, a variety of vendors. Um, and and I, I know currently Quick Clot and some others are out there. And those, those products have saved a lot of lives, so I don't want to diminish the, the impact that they've had. But as I said, in some cases, um, um, they can either be washed away or, or they just don't have the efficacy to shut down a, an arterial bleed. Um, in some cases, there, there's data that shows that some of those products can reduce but not, but not, but not stop that bleeding. So um, through an SBIR effort, uh, we started working with a company called Hybrid Plastics, and, and they specialize in a class of materials called POS, and that, that stands for polyhedral oligomeric silsesquioxanes. And it turns out that, that Hybrid Plastics has found some of these materials that you put them in a, it's, it's actually in a gel form, and you can imagine where it would be in a syringe or some other sort of application device, and not, not with a needle on the end, but with a plastic applicator tip in this case. And you would just squeeze the material out into, directly into the wound where you have the arterial bleed or other bleed. And that material goes on and forms a, a, a robust barrier, but not one that hardens and, and is able to basically help the body to form a clot and to shut down bleeding from that, uh, from that, uh, that, that arterial or other wound. Several of the nice things about uh, the, this POS-based material is, is, as I mentioned a moment ago, it does not it does not harden. So oftentimes you see some products where they want to have a, something that goes in there and hardens, and then that becomes that can become very difficult for the surgeons down the road to be able to retu- retu- remove that material without you know, causing causing further injury. So in the case of POS, it goes on, it um, uh, um, forms that barrier, and then. When you do get to a, a facility, um, if, if surgeon or other healthcare provider needs to, they can, you know, take a, um, a gauze or other material and wipe out the, the you know, any excess uh, uh, material that's present, the stat bond. And then what they can do is um, anything that's, res- that's still there will be absorbed by the body over time. So you don't have to try and go in there and remove something that's now sticking. And 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 you can imagine if you put something in there that that, that cures, even removing it might rip off the, the clot that has formed and is, is tenuous at that point in time. The other nice thing about POS, and compared to some of the earlier products, is some of the really early products that uh, that the DOD looked at, you'd put them on there and they'd actually, what we'd say in chemistry, exotherm, they give off heat. And um, what, some of the challenges from that is you, you, if it gets hot enough, you can actually burn the soldier or cause um, injury to uh, um, to that region or surrounding organs. And so... This the stat bond material does not exotherm; it just goes in there, and and works with the body to to help shut down that 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 blood by by facilitating clot formation. Robert Mance, a chemistry division chief at the Army Research Laboratory, speaking with Federal News Network's Scott Mossioni. Check out Scott's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade. Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic 
Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is to lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment, Shane, and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be, uh, uh, to to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide 
in terms of race in America is. And but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, 
just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.